0: I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. While you're turning there, I um, want to make two observations that I never want us to forget about as a church, and I think these are moments that we should be profoundly thankful to the Lord for. One is for the children that God has so graciously and abundantly given us as a church, And I think about them every Sunday as Pastor Garrett comes and gives a children's message. I did not grow up in a church that did this. How many of you grew up in a church or were part of a church for an extended period of time that had a children's sermon every Sunday? Can I see your hands? All right, hold them up high, and I want everybody to look around. Very few of us. This is a church where every week, usually, there are some Sundays where we just don't have the opportunity to do that, but we take time in our corporate worship to teach our children and not just to tell a little story or a little object lesson that has no meaning to it, but we are trying to build theology into their life. I don't know if you realize what happens when they leave and they go upstairs. Um, They are not going to be entertained. That's not why we have a children's ministry. We have a children's ministry because we want to put deep love for Jesus into their heart, just like we're trying to develop and cultivate deep love for Jesus in our own heart here in this service, they are also uh, receiving the Word in their time upstairs. There is a theological curriculum that is being taught to them. Pastor Garrett and the team that work with them are actually working through theology with them. You say, can kids learn theology? Well, what do you think? And the answer to that is what? Yes. And I think they need to learn theology. So I'm very thankful for the ministry that uh, is going on in our church to our children. And Pastor Garrett and the team that work with him need help. And so later on today, they're going to make an appeal to you for some help. And if you're interested or you're burdened to uh, help with our children's ministry, this is an incredible way for you to invest in the next generation. Somebody invested in us when we were children. Somebody invested in us when we went to camp. Somebody invested in us when we sat in youth group. And now it's our turn to do that for the next generation. So if you have a burden or desire of the Lord works in your life in that way, uh, make sure you reach out to Pastor Garrett or to those that are working with our children and let them know of your availability. There are obviously... uh, protection things that we insist on because we want to care for our children well. We have a whole uh, book of policies that we live under and we live by. And for those that work in our children's ministry, there are additional checks that happen just because we have responsibility to parents. And we want you to know that we take that responsibility very, very seriously. But we do uh, want help in that area. And then I want to let you know uh, that this Sunday... Uh, We are going to say goodbye, hopefully not forever, but we're going to say goodbye to Theron and Bethany Binder, who are moving. Uh, Theron is going to uh, be involved in the family business with his parents, and so they are moving up, uh, I think it's to Pennsylvania, where are you guys at? Uh, Is that right, did I get that right to Pennsylvania? And they're going to be there for at least a year. And uh, after that year, uh, depends on what the Lord does. They may uh, come back to Greenville. But Therney and Bethany, you, you guys have been a great blessing to all of us. Thank you for your ministry to us. Uh, they came to the elders and uh, different uh, of our leaders and alerted us that this was a possibility months ago. And so we've been praying for them and with them. And as we have prayed with them and talked with them, it has become just so clear to us that this is what the Lord is doing. And so while we hate that you guys aren't going to be with us, we celebrate God's work in your life, and we thank God for you. And please know that we're going to be praying with you. They are going to stay connected with us in some way, uh, even while they're gone, so we're thankful for that. But we want to just let you know, and uh, as as you see them later after the service, uh, hug their neck, pray for them, uh, put $100 in there, and, or no, I'm whatever God leads you to do, but just there is is that how you want me to say that? Did I get that right? No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. All right, 1 Corinthians 10. Let's go to our text this morning. We are right in the middle on the back end of a series that we have been working on all summer regarding gathered worship. And one of the things we've noted about gathered worship is that it is how God works in our heart so that as we behold the glory of God, we are transformed by that glory into that glory. And so we have noted that throughout our series, that worship isn't just the joyful expression of something, it's actually something that God does in our life as we come to worship. You know, when when we think about worship, it is the celebration of immense gospel realities. When you come here week by week, and we get together around God's Word, and we sing that Word together, and we pray that Word together, and we read that Word together, and then we listen to the preaching of that Word together, there are immense gospel realities that are in, at play. I mean, I want you to think about those gospel realities for a moment because they ought to be a source of great joy to you. Think about how many people live the Christian life and there's no joy and there's great burden. And maybe for a time in your life, you experienced that. You would wake up in the morning and you felt like you were pushing a wheelbarrow and you would open up your Bible, and here are four more commands that you're not doing, and it's like throwing four bricks into your wheelbarrow. And now you've got to wheel that barrow around all week. And then you listen to the radio, and you hear somebody teach or preach a message, and it's two more bricks in the barrel. And then you come to church, and there's six more things you're supposed to be doing that you aren't doing, but nobody knows that you're not doing it. And so now you've got more bricks in your, in your wheelbarrow. And after a while, you can't push that wheelbarrow anymore. And when somebody like me comes up and talks about gospel realities and the joy of worship, you just kind of, in your mind, go, I, I, don't, I don't experience that. That's not what's happening to me. And the more you hear about the kind of joyful worship that we're supposed to have, and the more it's missing in your life, it's like even more bricks get thrown into your wagon. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to ask you to park your wheelbarrow, leave all those bricks off to the side for a minute, and just think about immense gospel realities that are true about you. Let me give you a couple that I think will encourage you. I want you to think about the fact that 2,000 years ago, God sent a Messiah. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, two immense things happened. He obeyed the law perfectly. Theologians call that the active obedience of Jesus. He obeyed the law perfectly. There was never a moment in Jesus' entire existence where there was disobedience that marked any aspect of his life. Not in word, not in deed, not in motive, not in thought, not in attitude, not in something committed or in something omitted. There was never a touch of disobedience anywhere in Jesus' life. He rendered For the entire time, he lived on this planet as an incarnated Messiah, perfectly obedient to God's laws. And you say, well, wow, that's amazing. I could never do that. That's exactly right. You could never do that, and I could never do that, but Jesus did. And when Paul talks about righteousness being imputed to you, that's the righteousness he's talking about. The perfect obedience of Jesus Christ has been fully credited to your account. That's the gospel reality. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of bricks just fell off your wagon. All of the things you were trying to... I just can't obey this all the time. I don't, know, I don't understand why I can't do this. And Jesus says, not, I don't care that you don't do that. That's not what He's saying to you. But He's saying, listen, you can leave all of that weight behind Because there is a perfect righteousness that has been imputed to you, and when God the Father looks at you, He sees perfect righteousness. When you look in the mirror, you don't see that. But when God looks at you, He sees perfect righteousness. That is a gospel reality that is so immense, it's hard to grasp, isn't it? It's like, what are you talking about? It is a gospel reality that is wrapped up in the life of Jesus. And so through his act of obedience, he gave an unassailable righteousness to each one of us that was imputed to us. And then the second major thing that happened was his substitutionary death. He went to a cross to pay the penalty that all of us had for all of the disobedience that marked our life. It's not just that... He imputed righteousness to us. He took care of the penalty and he made a vicarious atonement that was sufficient for us. And all of that is wrapped up in the good news that the Apostle Paul was not ashamed to declare to the people at Rome and that all of the other New Testament apostles were authorized to extend to the world. That is what Jesus talked about when he authorized them to go and announce the good news to the world. What's the good news? There is a righteousness, an amazing righteousness that is available to people, and there is an escape from the penalty of death because somebody has paid that penalty. And if that were the entirety of the gospel, it would be overwhelming. If we could grasp those two things, it would change everything for us. But there's more. Everybody who has embraced that good news, everybody has, who has come to the place where the Spirit of God has opened their eyes and livened their heart, helped their will to submit to the demand of the gospel to believe, has been granted repentance, has been born again from above. Just like John 4 talks about when Jesus met with Nicodemus and he said, look, you will never see the kingdom of heaven until you have a birth that doesn't come from below, a natural birth. You have to have a birth that is granted to you from above. You have to be born again from above. And the new birth that comes from above is the birth that is generated by the Spirit and it results in the washing away of your sins. And when that happens to you, you become part of a new kind of person. In the Old Testament and in the world of Jesus' day, you could divide the world into two big groups. You had the Jews, God's chosen people, and then you had everybody else, the Gentiles, the nations. Yet all of the rest of the world. And all of a sudden, Jesus is announcing a radical change. God is taking people out of this group and God is taking people out of that group and He's forming a brand new group, a third kind of group. And He announces this when He's talking to a woman at a well in John chapter 4. I said Nicodemus in John 4. He's actually John 3. John 4 is the woman at the well. And He says to her, the Father is seeking. He is actively seeking working to bring about an entirely new kind of worshiper. A genuine worshiper who's not going to worship on the mountain that is Jerusalem and at the temple that Solomon built. This new kind of worshiper is going to worship in a magnificent temple, a cosmic temple, a living temple. Paul talks about this temple in Ephesians 2. You and I are living stones in that temple And the chief stone, the most beautiful stone, the keystone in that temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are here this morning as part of that temple rendering worship. That's stunning, isn't it? And then on top of that, we have been granted full rights as God's children. We have been granted an inheritance that can't be touched. I mean, think about all of these immense gospel realities, and they are what we come together to celebrate every week as we come to worship. Worship, therefore, is to be joyful. There is a joy-producing nature of worship. It is to be powerfully transformative. As we think about these realities, they, they don't just create joy in us, they actually change us. When we talked about the, the glory that was lost that is being restored to us. That's what we mean by transformative. We saw this in Isaiah 6. But that brings me to a question. If all of this is true, then what do I do when I come to worship from a week where I don't feel like I've been transformed? What what do I do when I've had the kind of week that most of us have on a regular basis where we, we leave church on Sunday morning and we go into this world that we inhabit and, and it is full of burdens, it is full of conflict, it is full of disappointment, it is full of obstacles. I mean, sometimes we go out into that world and we, over the next seven days, will be overtaken by a transgression. Galatians chapter 6 talks about this. You weren't anticipating it, you weren't on the lookout for it, and it's like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, sin comes up behind you and just mows you down. It just runs you over and you're caught in a transgression. Or what happens when you are in a battle for righteousness in your life with a temptation, the temptation that constantly assails you that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 12 that so easily and so often comes around and entangles you and you yield it, and you come to worship, and it's not joyful. You come to worship, and it's everything that you can do to just sit and stand and sing and and participate. And if the truth be told, that is where most of us live, isn't it? I mean, when we leave here and we go out into the world, there, there are disappointments, there are unexpected Burdens, there are weights that come. We saw some of this this week. You're going to have your own in the week ahead. I'm going to have my own in the week ahead. And seven days from now, we're going to come back here, and most of us are going to have a hard time remembering even what the text for the sermon was. It, we're just that's just the way it is. We get so caught up in the world around us and so freighted down and weighted down by all of the things that happen to us, that when we come to worship, somebody like me gets up and says, hey, worship's joyful. Hey, worship is transformative. And that almost seems like an empty claim. It's almost like, what are you talking about, Pastor? Because that's not what's happening to me. And so I want to ask the question, what is it about worship that is restorative? What is it about worship that replenishes us? What is it about worship that gives us hope and extends help? And that's really what I want us to think about. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read about four components that were true in the, in the worship of the early church. And we have talked about those components in our series. We talked about the fact that worship that transforms, worship that is joy-filled, And now worship that is restorative is done by means of the apostles' doctrine. And so the word is central to all of what we're talking about. But we also noted that there are at least three other things. There is gospel service. There is gospel partnership. That's the idea of fellowship in Acts 2.42. And then there are the prayers. There are specific prayers that the church prayed, and we're going to talk about that before we get to the end of our series, but between the gospel partnership and the scripture-based praying of the early church, there is this moment that the writer of Acts describes as the breaking of bread, and it speaks to the communal meal that we talked about uh, two weeks ago when we looked at worshiping through the signs and the symbols that God has given for corporate worship. In the early church, this meal happened every week. In our church, and in churches like ours, it happens occasionally. But it happened every week. And that meal wasn't just a little piece of bread, a little wafer, and a tiny little container of juice. It was a full meal. And it it mirrored the meals the religious meals of the day and we don't typically have religious meals in our day and so when we talk about the refreshing nature of worship at the heart of the refreshment was this meal this meal nourished this meal replenished this meal symbolized gospel realities that were stunning in the world of Paul's day and in the world of the Corinthian church. And it wasn't coming out of nowhere. Religious meals were commonplace in the world in which Paul lived and in which Luke wrote. For example, if you lived in any of the cities of Paul's time, if you lived in Ephesus or you lived at Corinth, uh, there were religious meals that happened all the time. Uh, Pagans were very conscious of their gods and their gods sort of punctuated almost every part of their life. If, if you were a family, if you were the head of a family, you had a family God that your family had worshipped for generations. And you honored that God. And everybody in your household, all of your children, all of their families, all of those servants that worked in your household, everybody honored the family God, the God of your family. If you had a guild, if you were a, a skilled craftsman or you had a particular business, every craft, every guild had a god, a patron god. A city would often have a god or goddess that was the city's patron god or goddess. For example, at Ephesus, the patron goddess was the goddess Diana. And so we can just see throughout the pagan world, these gods and these goddesses literally dominated. Almost every part of life, you didn't do anything without giving some form of recognition or some form of honor to the gods, including the emperor. And one of the ways that you did this was through a ritual meal. If you lived in the ancient world, you would frequently be invited to the temple of a god to observe a marriage or to observe a particular day in the life of somebody. Or you might have a religious observance that your boss would have for the benefit of the, of, of the business and asking the God over that business to sort of watch over the business for that year. And everybody was expected to come and participate in that religious meal. This is how you honored that God. This is how you acknowledged that God's reality and power for good or for evil over that person over that marriage, over that city, or over that particular guild or that job. And you were affirming your solidarity with whoever invited you to the feast that you were appealing to that God on their behalf for blessing. This was a communal event. And if you lived in that community, you were expected to participate. In fact, it was a great breach if you didn't. If somebody invited you to the wedding of somebody, if somebody invited you, your boss said, hey, we're going to have uh, a time as a, as a business where we're going to get together and we're going to honor our patron God and I'm going to pay for a ritual feast at the temple and I want everybody to be there. And you didn't show up. It was a breach. And it wasn't just a breach in etiquette. It was actually a breach That created question in people's minds. So if something bad happened in that marriage, or if something bad happened at that job, or famine came to the city, and you had disrespected the God, then you were the cause of all of that. And so for a Christian to not attend one of these feasts was very, very costly. And so these feasts were very, very common in the ancient world. They they always involved idolatry, and they often involved carnality and sensuality and even immorality. And if you and I lived in Paul's day at the city of Ephesus or at the city of Corinth or any of the cities, Thyatira, and uh, we finished our worship service and we went out, it would not be unusual during the course of the next seven days for one of you to get an invitation to one of those feasts. And you would have to decide, what am I going to do? Now, that's the background to this. There's an Old Testament background. Remember we said there are two groups of people. Those were the religious feasts of the pagans, but there were also religious feasts that God had given to his people. You can read about them in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. There are seven of them, and they were the Old Testament feasts of Israel. And three times a year, God commanded every Israelite to stop everything they were doing, make their way to the beautiful city of Jerusalem, make their way to the most magnificent temple in the ancient world, and observe these feasts. And they were genuine times of celebration. The entire nation came together. There was singing. There was eating. There was corporate uh, reunion, there was fellowship. I mean these were times where the entire nation stopped everything they were doing, and they came together to observe these celebrations. And God himself said, and i don 't want you to worry about your crops i don 't want you to worry about any loss you 're going to have during those weeks. I will make sure that your crops grow. I will make sure that your harvest is abundant. You can go for these weeks and celebrate. And all of Israel did that. In fact, on their way to Jerusalem, they were so excited to get there that they actually would sing psalms. There are 15 of them in the Psalter and they are called the Songs of Ascent. And they would sing these songs together as they were on their way up the road to Jerusalem. And sometimes they would even sing these songs on the steps that led up to the temple itself. And so, if you lived in the ancient world, you lived in a world full of religious feasts. And on the night that Jesus died, he gave his church a feast that was greater than any of these feasts. It was more powerful. It had more rich theology. It did more God's people and it was at the heart of their worship when you came to worship in the ancient world you came and you didn't just pray and you didn't just sing and you didn't just hear preaching you came and you participated in a magnificent meal and that meal nourished you and it didn't just nourish your body it nourished your soul And that's where I want us to look this morning. Even though we don't observe that meal every Sunday, the elements that make that meal what it was are here every Sunday. And it wasn't the physical food that nourished the soul of the early believer. It was the realities behind the meal. And if we can see that meal and understand those realities, then perhaps we can find the same nourishment week by week that they. And that's why I say that gospel-shaped worship isn't just joyful and it isn't just transformative, it's restorative. It actually refreshes us. And so let me show this to you quickly this morning as we look to God's Word. I want you to see that corporate worship portrays a beautiful picture, the relational unity and corporate solidarity that we have with one another when we come together. I mean, if you lived in the ancient world and you were part of God's nation, you understood that you occupied a particular place in God's mind that was different from all of the other nations, that somehow in God's goodness and by God's grace, He had given you gracious gifts that had not been given to the nations. If you lived in the city of Corinth or you lived in the city of Ephesus In Paul's time, and Paul began explaining your new identity as as not just a, 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 a Jew who had come to embrace Messiah. You were a completely different kind of person now. You were part of a new creation that was coming. And God had given to you immense privileges and immense rights that the Jews themselves no longer had. It brought about a corporate solidarity. I want you to look around the room for a minute, and I want to ask you to think about this question. What do you have in common with everybody else in this room? What brings you commonality? And it's not where you were born, right? We're not, we're not unified by our, our particular views on a certain thing. It's, there, are, there are more differences in this room than there are similarities. You know, we start talking about our background. We're like, I cannot relate to that. I didn't grow up like that. I grew up in a home that was flavored by the Hispanic world. I ate food that nobody else, you know, you guys like Mexican food and you go to restaurants. I actually ate real Mexican food that burned your mouth as it went down. And it warmed your heart. I mean, literally warmed your heart. And so there were traditions that, that were part of our family when we celebrated Christmas. We, we did certain things that, that we don't do because unless you're Hispanic, it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. Um, most of you don't get up on, on Christmas morning and think, oh, today's the day we're having tamales. It's great. You're like, what? That's Christmas? Yeah, that's Christmas. Bunuelos. Man, they are amazing. You guys go to the fair and you eat elephant ears. That's a bunuelo in my world, and and they were part of just what we did for Christmas. You know, we, uh, we had Christmas twice a year. The real Christmas for us was in January, on Three Kings Day. We always got presents on Christmas Day, and then we got presents. I thought, man, I hit the jackpot. This is great. It's different. We have differences more than we have similarities. Think about our political views. Pastor, you just like walked into the minefield. I know, I walked in the minefield. I'm going to walk right out. I just brought it up as an illustration, right? We're not commonly held together by a political view. We're not commonly held together by a religious background. We're not commonly held together by a social structure. What holds us all together is something greater. It's the gospel. There is solidarity here. That's the reason I can look at the person next to me in the pew and say, you and I have something great in common. The greatness of what we have in common far surpasses any of these other small differences that we might strongly feel in our lives. There is a beautiful relational unity and corporate solidarity that happens the minute you walk into this room, when you walk into gathered worship, all of our other identities stay outside and what happens is we come together and there is this incredible corporate solidarity and we can look at one another and it doesn't matter where we came from or what our background was or whether or not we had these opportunities or those opportunities or we came out of these broken places we are all here together as one. We belong to the same family. We have the same father. We are part of the same body. Now, all of that beauty comes with a warning. There is a warning that comes with worship. And the warning is this, be careful not to fall under judgment. You can see this, can't you? In 1 Corinthians ten, twelve. Let therefore anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Paul, oh, what are you talking about? I mean, you, you just talked to us about our fathers being under one cloud and all passing through the sea and all being baptized and all eating the same spiritual food and all having the same spiritual drink, and that's, that's us. What are you talking about, about divine judgment? And Paul is saying, listen, Those of you that gather together to worship every week and you have this wonderful meal that replaces all the pagan meals in your city and that has taken the place of all of the feasts in the Old Testament. Those of you that have a right to sit at that table because of the immense gospel realities that are true for you, be careful. And So this morning as we come to worship, Paul would say to us, be joyful, but be careful. What are we supposed to be careful about? And what we're supposed to be careful about is despising the food that God has given to us. And you can see that in the third part of what Paul says here. There is a biblical example tied to worship that he gives of what happened to a group of people who weren't careful with their worship. You can see this right away in this text. Paul says in verses 1 through 4, look at what these people had. You you have inherited a meal in worship that is greater than what these people had, but look at what they had. And and he, he talks about their corporate unity. He talks about their spiritual deliverance. He talks about their guidance. He talks about their provision. Listen to how he describes it. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that they drank water that came supernaturally because the spiritual rock that followed them, Christ, gave it to them. When Moses hit that rock, out came the water, but don't for a minute think it was Moses. There was somebody behind Moses that was their rock. And that spiritual rock, Jesus, who was with them in the wilderness, is who gave them their provision. They had corporate unity, they had spiritual deliverance, they had guidance, protect, the same things that you and I have. They had. But here's what they did look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were were absolutely overturned. Here were people who had been taken out of the pagan nations. They had been given a gracious covenant. They had been given amazing leaders in Moses and Aaron, not perfect. They had been given phenomenal opportunity and phenomenal privilege. They had seen and heard things. With their very eyes, that could only be explained by the presence of God. And with many of them, God was not pleased. Could it be possible that we could come week after week and celebrate the gospel realities that we've been talking about? The active obedience of Jesus, the beautiful substitution that He accomplished for us by dying in our place on the cross, the gift of the Spirit of God, the washing away of our sins the opening of a new way into the very throne room of God as the veil of the temple was rent by His own body being broken on that cross? The indwelling presence of the Spirit. Can we look at all of these beautiful things that have happened to us? Is it possible that we could come week after week and sing about them and pray over them and read them in the Scriptures and hear them preached to us and God be not pleased with us? Is it possible that we would walk out of here week after week? And with many of us, God would not be pleased. And the answer to that is what? Yes. That's why the warning. So why is it that God was not pleased? And the answer is in verse 7 through 11 of this text. God was not pleased because they were not content with what God gave them, and they desired what God had prohibited. Notice how he talks about it. Do not be idolaters as some of their them were. Do you remember making the golden calf in Exodus chapter 2? This came after they were delivered through the Red Sea. Do not be idolaters. You know, what golden calf do you have in your life? What do you care about more than you care about God? You know what an idol is? An idol is something that you care so much about. You are willing to disobey God to get it. That's an idol. It could be your kids. It could be your marriage. It could be your job. It could be financial gain. If you are willing to disobey God to get whatever you want, you just found a golden calf in your life. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament Israelite. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a very kind and gracious way of talking about sexual immorality. You can read about this in Numbers 25. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Notice the next phrase. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed. This this discontent came because they were sick and tired of the manna. They said, we loathe this worthless food in Numbers 21. Nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Number 14, they grumbled and rebelled against Moses and against his leaders. I mean, think about this in our own lives. How often do we have an idol that creeps up? How often do we engage, even mentally, in immoral activity? How often do we despise God's provision or demand something that we want from God that He has chosen not to give us? How often do we resist those leaders, imperfect leaders in our life that God has given to guide us and direct us? And this was going on in the presence of all of the good things that God was doing. Which brings us then to this question. How does worship deliver us from all of this? How does worship actually refresh us? And worship refreshes us by pointing us to Jesus. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? If, If these people, if the Old Testament Israelites had no hope of standing, then what is the hope that we have? And that's the beauty of what Paul talks about in verse 13. Look at verse 13. No temptation. No transgression, no sin will overcome you that is not common to man. He just gave us an example of what happened in Corinth, and He gave us an example of what happened in the Old Testament, and He's basically saying, this is going to happen to you. But with that temptation, God has made you a promise. And the promise He has made you is that He is faithful. He will not allow that temptation to come beyond your ability to resist, and He will, with that temptation, make a way of escape. And the word that you hear every week is that way of escape. You know, I don't know what is going on in your life. You don't know what is going on in my life, and I don't know what you're going to hit or what you have hit. When you walk in the door, I don't know usually the kind of week you've had. And I certainly don't know the kind of week you're going to have. But God does. And I have been in places where the Word of God has been preached. And there is something in the sermon that I didn't know I needed until four days later. And all of a sudden, something came up. And I'm like, I, I needed I needed what I heard on Sunday from my pastor. Or maybe I am just fixated on a song. Maybe there's a, uh, a, you know, I listen to Christian radio every morning as I'm driving and I have it playing in my office and as I'm listening to the Christian music that comes on, oftentimes there's a song that would just jump out and that song will just lodge itself in my head. And I don't know why it did. I don't know why that song came, and then two weeks later, something comes up in my life, and that's the song, that's the message that I needed. And you have those experiences as well. And that's why when we were talking about worshiping by means of the Word, the preaching of God's Word, you want to preserve as much of that as you can. You want to take notes. You want to remember as much of it as you can. I know for me, when I preach on Sunday and I go back three weeks, I don't really remember everything I said. And I have to go back and say, All right, what have I said here so that I can prepare to say it here? And if I'm having to do that, you're going to have to do it as well. Because the word that I'm preaching to you and to me is the word that is going to be the way of escape. And that brings us to the final thing before we pray this morning, and that is this, worship affords spiritual help. It doesn't just give us hope through deliverance. It actually gives us help. It gives us help. It gives us spiritual assistance. And I want to show it to you. What happens when a believer falls into sin? What happens when a believer is caught up in a sin and is so caught up in that sin they refuse to repent. How does worship help such a believer? When somebody is overtaken by a sin, when that sin uh, becomes a life-dominating sin, and it it overcomes their life, it's doing relational damage to the church. It's doing doctrinal damage to the purity of the truth, and it is certainly hurting the spread of the gospel. We have occasions of this in the New Testament. There are two occasions of this. One is in the book we're looking at. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So what happens when a believer is overtaken by a sin? Well, there is the gracious confrontation and gentle rebuke that happens by the spiritual leaders of the church. Paul said to the Galatians, if anyone is caught under transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And while the individual Christian has a part in that, I personally think what he's talking about based on the whole context of that passage is he's talking about the spiritual leaders of the church. We have a responsibility when you're caught up in a sin that is well known, it is verified, it is established before uh, others, it is doing damage to the unity of the body, it is doing damage to the truth, and it is doing damage to the gospel. We can't just act like that's not going on in your life. And then there is the sorrowful discipline that happens through the body. If after the spiritual leadership is not responded to in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus announces this, if your brother sends Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. So not certainly not arguing that we don't have individual responsibility to do this. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every cha- charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he rel- refuses to listen, tell it to the church. By the way, can I just make a comment about this? The two others that go with you need to be people that have witnessed what has happened. These are not two people that you tell, hey, this is what this person did to me, now I need the two of you to come, and I, we're going to, these are two other people that have witnessed what happened. And you need to bring those two eyewitnesses or e- earwitnesses to you so that it can be established. You see the word evidence in the text? So that it may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. When, when we talk about what we call church discipline, this is not you deciding, I want to go and and I want to find two people who agree with me, and we're going to go, and then we're going to get the pastor in a place where he's got to discipline this person, or we're leaving. You have to have eyewitnesses to this, and you take those eyewitnesses to you if this brother or sister doesn't repent, and then if if you have the evidence, the three or four of you have the evidence, Then you come to the church. And by church there, I'm taking the leadership of the church. That's why I go back to Galatians chapter 5, or 6 rather, and talk about the church. And if he will not listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile. And Paul says, let me give you an example of this. And he gives them an example in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported. It's been substantiated. All of these steps have happened. That there is sexual immorality among you, and it's not just sexual immorality. It is of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. You know, it's interesting to me that in a church like Corinth, you only have one example of church discipline. This is the most carnal church in the New Testament. You have one example of church discipline. So there's this loving, sorrowful discipline. But then what happens when that person repents? What happens to that brother in 1 Corinthians 5 who was disciplined lovingly by the leaders and sorrowfully by the body, and he repents? There is joyful restoration to fellowship and service. Notice what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says about this brother, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake, and it's been done in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You say, well, Pastor Sam, where's all this going? It's going to a meal. There was a meal that Jesus prepared one morning on the shore of the Sea of Galilee for a loyal disciple, one of his most closest and most loyal disciples, had been overtaken by sin. Not once, not twice, but three times. In the most critical moment of Jesus' ministry when he most needed his disciple to be loyal to him, Peter was disloyal. To the point of with an oath-flavored statement, I do not know this man. And after the resurrection, the the Scriptures talk about the debilitating moment that came in Peter's life because of that, and Scriptures just say he he went back fishing. And one day as he was out fishing, he looked on the shore and there was Jesus and he had a meal prepared. And when Peter got to the shore, Jesus had a meal with the disciples and then He took Peter to the side and He had a question for Peter. And the question was different than what I would have asked Peter. I would have said, Peter, have you learned your lesson? Peter, have you repented? Peter, have you figured out what you should have done? And, and there's a place for all those questions. But Jesus didn't ask that question. Here's what Jesus had one thing he wanted to know. He said, Peter, I want to ask you something. Do you love me? Do you love me? When you come to worship every week and you find yourself in Peter's sandals, the one thing Jesus wants to know from you is this Do you love me? Do you love me more than that sin, that beat you up this week? Do you love me more than whatever it is that caused the failure? Do you love me? And Peter gave a very humble answer. Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know everything went on that night. You know everything that went on my heart. And because you know everything, I can say this to you. Do you know how hard it is to look at somebody that you've betrayed and say, I love you? It sounds so empty. It sounds so weightless. You feel like a hypocrite saying it, don't you? You disappointed your husband. You disappointed your wife. You disappointed your kids. And you look at them and you say, but I love you. And nobody believes it. Sometimes you don't even believe it. Peter says, Lord, you you know it you know this, you know I love you. And Jesus did an astonishing thing. He gave a gracious restoration. He said to Peter, go to church. Welcome back. So he said, hey, you can worship again. Hey, you get to sit in church. You get to take the table again. No, You know what he said? Feed. I would have said, Peter, you're forgiven, but you can never again be an apostle because your sin did too much damage. It was so public, everybody around that fire saw it. Everybody heard it. Besides outsiders knowing about your denial, all of the Christian world knows about your denial because it's written down three times. Matthew told us about it. Luke told us about it. Mark told us about it. So yes to fellowship, but no to apostleship and certainly no to any writing of Scripture or to any proclaiming of authoritative truth. But Jesus said something very different, didn't he? Be my, sheep. I think he says that to you each week when you come to the table. Do you love me? And if you say to the Lord, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. And it's true. Jesus says to you, serve me like any other Christian would serve me. There are, to be sure, requirements that are on pastors. There are requirements that are on elders that are not on every other believer, and I'm not setting aside those. I'm saying that sometimes when somebody sins, a spectacular sin and they repent we are willing to restore them to fellowship but but nothing else and i wonder if jesus were here if he would kind of say now pastor sam i want you to step aside for a minute and i actually want to correct something i i have received peter i have received peter i am the one who extended that forgiveness and i want him, in Peter's case, or her in your case, to serve me in my church? Here's my question to you and to me. Are you willing to receive that personally? Have you just sort of got to the place where it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can ever do anything for God again. I never thought I was going to end up here. I never thought this was going to happen. I can't seem to get back. Vict- I just don't think I could ever, search, you know, I'll just sit in the back row and just maybe wait till I get to heaven and maybe I can have a little back seat there. something. Jesus would look at you and he would say, "Come, come over here a second. I have a question for you. Do you love me?" And you would say, "The Lord, Lord, I, I love you. I, I hate what happened. I, I, I don't understand it. I, I, I do understand. I just, I, but, but I do. I love you." And Jesus would say to you, "Serve me." Well, what, what would other people think? Does it matter what other people think? Serve. And sometimes we are the ones that make it hard for others to serve. Are you willing to extend that kind of forgiveness to somebody that Jesus has restored? That's a question, isn't it? And that's why worship is restored. Now, again, I want to be clear: there are certain standards that God holds the pastor of the church, the pastors, the elders of the church to, and and the deacons. And so we need to uphold those. I'm not in any way undoing those. I'm just I'm just going to a very bottom level for us when Jesus restores us are we willing to accept the restoration personally and are we willing to embrace the restoration corporately because that's when worship really becomes restorative father we thank you for your word and its power and its goodness in our life lord i pray that you would help us as we sit under this truth and allow it to work in our lives We pray that your worship would restore us and refresh us in Jesus' name.